Welcome to the Five and a Mind Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes. And coming up on this episode, I'm joined by writer-director Julio Quintana. And we are discussing the Israeli philosopher and historian Yuval Noah Harari and his philosophies on storytelling or the point of storytelling, if you will. So as you can imagine, it's going to be a very focalizing, unambitious episode. I'm kidding. We, we were taking a giant bite off, and hopefully you will stick along with this journey. Uh, Julio co-wrote and directed Blue Miracle, which is currently on Netflix. Uh, it stars Dennis Quaid and Jimmy Gonzalez. Uh, he also wrote and directed the 2016 movie The Vessel with Martin Sheen. Uh, Julio is an old friend, as this conversation will show. And I only saw Blue Miracle recently in prep for this interview. We hadn't we hadn't been in contact for a few years and of all my friends that I came up with that have been since directed some films, I was really impressed with how charming the performances are. Like, um, Dennis Quaid in particular has, is very winning as is Jimmy Gonzalez, who was also in Nicholas Winding Refn's Too Old to Die Young, which we also already did an episode on. Um, but first up what I watched this week, one of the only interesting things I watched this week was the Japanese sci-fi film from 2008, I think, The Clone Returns Home, which directed by Kanji Nakajimi. It kind of has... It's been on my watch list for a while and knocked it off. It kind of has a Ozu or Mizuguchi doing Solaris vibe to it. So poetic meditation is what you're going to get with that. Um, the most interesting film-related thing from this week... Author Dana Spiata has a new book out called Wayward, and I had heard in the past that she, I have never read any bo books of her, even though she's a National Book Award winning author, and I checked out a book of hers from 2015 called Innocents and Others, which was spectacular. I, I read it super quick. It's super, it's relatively short, um, but it's a, I have a soft spot about novels, about movies I like narrative fiction about either filmmaking or the process of going into films it's one of the reasons i've always never really you know in theory everyone loves the book walker percy's the moviegoer and one of the reasons i've always had a iffy relationship with it is because i thought there'd be more movies in it uh, one of my go-to's uh, resources for books about movies is there's a science sound article from august 2018 called 100 novels of cinema that has a great list, but Innocence and Others is a story about two female filmmakers uh, who went to the same high school together, and it takes place from the 70s till about 2015. And one is a very uh, experimental documentary filmmaker, and one ends up becoming a, a mainstream filmmaker. And there's also a third character who uh, blindly calls random uh, men in Hollywood. Um, I won't give away too many plot points or any plot points, uh, but I do, there's, it ends with a really beautiful passage, the last page. And again, I'm not going to spoil any plot, but I just wanted to read this one part uh, from the last passage, the last paragraph. She looked deep into the black of her closed eyes, stared into the dark. When your sense of vision has very little stimulation, it invents images. Sarah doesn't know the name for this is the prisoner's cinema. It is a trick of the mind. Blindness turned into glorious sight. Isolation turned into hallucination. After enough time, she saw a series of light. 
The false images are called phosphenes, which means show of lights. Again, not spoiling anything, but this passage beautifully ties the book together, both thematically and plot-wise, but that's all I'll say on that. But as for today's episode, uh, Julio and I talking Yuval Noah Harari, who has come to fame on three really popular books. He started out with a very popular book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, which, uh, among other things, was on one of President Obama's read list. And the last few years, as I've been reading more nonfiction, have been guilty of being severely blown away by certain books. And when I get blown away by them, mainly nonfiction books, I want to tell everyone I know about them how, like, oh, this completely changed my way of thinking about something. And I'll like, very giddily try to describe the arguments of the books, the facts the book lies out. And I do it like a four-year-old who's never seen a school in his life, who can't remember a, a thing from the book at all. And uh, Yuval Noah Harari is definitely one of these people. His other two books, which we will discuss on here, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is a big topic, a lofty topic, and uh, I won't pretend that we get into everything about what Harari explores in the book, but storytelling is a key component for him of how society is organized. And this was redefining how I looked at storytelling and movie making even before the pandemic and after the pandemic. Harari also is very deeply focused on the key, especially with his last book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, what's coming in the future, mainly in the next century. And uh, he's big into the concept of exponential change, and he outlines certain things that it's... If I sound like uh, this is dry reading, it's very readable, very, very fun, very playful. And when I was discussing with Julio topics to do, um, I had that shared enthusiasm when we brought when I mentioned this that he had read Harari's books too as well, and there was a way of this was also a key component in his not necessarily Harari but just books like this are key in his creative process, and so talking about intention uh, and, and ambition seemed like as good an organic topic to do with Julio. Uh, again, his new movie, Blue Miracle, is currently on Netflix. Uh, hope you enjoy this conversation. Is that your office? Yeah. Yeah, this is, is, my it, is it is it is it a corded off space from the kids or do they come in or? no dude it's like they're always there's a there's a hollow you know two inch door between me and chaos at all times so it's uh so it's mostly just like you know writing with them around is it's been interesting when i first started writing my the but originally like, like when i did the vessel i always had to go off into my i had my parents had a lake house at the time that they were never at and i would go and uh I, I had to just be alone for like two or three months and then little by little, I guess, becoming maybe a more professional in, in my work, I had to just figure out how to work it in between dropping kids off at gymnastics and picking them up from jujitsu and whatever, you know, so it's, um, it, it's been an interesting evolution. So are you, are you scheduled now? Cause like it's, we, like 
we we didn't exactly write together, but I remember we kind of we had a lot of conversations about like finding time to write, writing being a struggle, writing being the thing that we wanted to do the most, and like as you get older, you had kids in in a, in a house and a marriage, and I assume you're on a scheduling scheduling writing regimen kind of. Yeah, it's it's basically like I you know I get up in the morning. With and uh, t- typically, you know, I stay up later, uh, so I end up doing the nighttime routine with the kids. And then Marla, who's my wife and producer, obviously, you know, uh, is she does the morning routine, she's a morning person. And so, I basically I get up and I'll, you know, hang out with the kids for a little bit, and then I come to my office and uh, usually try to either read something or watch some sort of you know, YouTube lecture that's sort of tangentially uh, related to what I'm trying to write. And it's usually more like, uh, it's, it's procrastination that makes me feel like I'm just getting smarter. So it's worth it. So, um, and then, uh, once the coffee's finally kicked in, then I can usually sit down and try to knock out a couple pages of something, but that's not even accurate. I mean, a couple of pages, if you could, if I could actually do two pages a day, I'd be writing a script every, you know, two months, but that's actually not the case. So I, I think, I think most of the time, I feel like it's if I if I feel like my, the the writing process is you know it's like the iceberg of ninety percent just trying to absorb things through books and lectures and things like that and then and then when I finally sit down and write I can usually knock things out pretty quickly but I would say probably about ten percent of my actual time in this office is spent typing words maybe maybe even less I don't even know that's a that's a good percentage I, I have been finding lately that I use a lot of um quotation marks around research just to like mm-hmm. like how like oh here's another movie that's similar to something i'm interested in pursuing yep. i should watch the 40th version of this yeah. instead of having <laughs> written page three you know yeah yeah that's and and it is the the, the beginning of a screenplay is always the the hardest part so it's it, it i find like by the time i get to the third act of something i it, it seems like it just kind of gets knocked out in a, in a week or something but it's it's the it's the fir- the first gosh man the first ten pages sometimes because you're still trying to figure out the tone the, the, the thematically what it is you're trying to get at you know um, how these characters talk uh, and so that it's it's a it's the first few the first few pages are usually pretty pretty tough but well let's rewind back um, where are you from uh, well I was born in California originally because my parents well my parents were born in Cuba so they moved to California. Uh, and then I was born in California and then, um, I was a month old. We moved to Alaska. And so I spent the first six years of my life in Alaska. Uh, we're in Alaska, Kenai, Alaska. It's like three hours from Anchorage, but, um, real, really small town. My dad moved there because of, uh, oil industry. And, uh, and then I lived there until all, until first grade. And I moved to back to, um, Santa Maria, California, then Bakersfield, California, then back to Los Angeles. And then, uh, Louisiana for middle school, which was the, um, that was a shock. Cause I went from LA to a small town in Louisiana. Where in Louisiana? Brobridge, Louisiana, which is, okay. it's, uh, if it's just, a, it, it's a, I mean, I, it's just a small stop on off of I-10 basically. And, uh, if, if you, I've driven that I-10 route, so I have, I have driven by it at I'm, least. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. And it's so small. And, and so I was, you know, that was just such a weird period. Cause it was like, it was going from Los Angeles to Brobridge, Louisiana, like the year I hit puberty, the year everything gets weird and confusing. And, you know, so everything is like 
I I felt like they were everybody was so wonderful and, and um accepting. Like they all just thought I was cool and I had a lot of friends and I, I but by the time I left, which was like halfway through my freshman year of high school, I could see the writing on the wall that this is like not a place it's not a where I had a future, you know, where I, it was like okay. it was like high school there is is kind of you know, drinking and, and, you know, uh, out in fields sometimes <laughs> trying, you know, uh, it was like, is it the small town thing? Or it's what? a real small town, real small town. And, and, and I just felt like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I really felt drawn. I wanted to like live in a city. I want to be more anonymous. This is like a place where everybody knows everything about everyone. And, um, and there was something about it that I just felt like it was, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I was, I was, I was excited. So when my dad, asked, my parents asked like, you know, how do you feel about moving to Houston? Uh, I was, I was thrilled about it. There's, there's people there, you know, friends there that I really loved and stuff, but I was really ready to, to move to a bigger city. What was, um, moving around that much? What was the movie going like, or were you watching movies at home? Did you go to the theaters much? Man, uh, you know, it was, I, I would say I had a pretty sheltered, uh, sheltered upbringing with regards to movies and media. I mean, it was like, I, I, I specifically remember when I was a kid, um, I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies until I was 13. Uh, okay. and then I started watching radar movies in high school. Well, I mean, so then, so then what that means is that I would like, I would go sneak over to my cousin's house to watch the, some Van Damme movie on VHS or I would be, you know, so you're always, you're always just trying to. Always it, at the cousin's house. Yeah. It's always, I, it's always the cousins, man. And so, so everything, I, you know, uh, radar movies became contraband, you know, and it was a black market for me where I would, um, <laughs> any, any, any opportunity I had to, to watch, you know, a Steven Seagal or something, I would, I would go try it. And, um, and so, so really from, but, but we did watch a lot of movies. So it was, it was kind of the Friday night tradition was we would watch, we would, you know, my dad would go to Blockbuster and rent a movie and, um, he didn't really value movies very much. So like half the time he would, he would rent something and realize 10 minutes in that we had already watched it. Cause he forgot that we had already watched that movie. So, <laughs> you know, so it was, so I, 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 for the most part, movies were just sort of a, they were like a kind of a wholesome reason to get the kids all in a room on a Friday night, uh, as opposed. Were there any standouts with the family? I mean, you you mentioned Van Damme. That's a standout, but I I personally was obsessed with like you know action movies and martial arts movies as a kid. Um, but but uh, that's not really something that's followed me to stay. I don't. I but for for whatever reason, I mean, the, the standouts as a kid for sure were like the Indiana Jones trilogy was like i wanted to be indiana jones like basically until i wanted to be michael jordan you know or something it was like you know it was like that was like he was like it was he-man and then indiana jones and then michael jordan and then eventually i didn't know we had the he-man overlap (laughs) oh he-man have you ever tried to go back and watch that thing Uh, like even clips of it as an adult it's uh i watched it i want to say I watched parts of parts of it. Maybe it was like it maybe in a decade ago because there's some really big name. Um, um, oh, I'm blanking on the editor, but the woman who edited um, she's edited for Steven Soderbergh and she edited Lawrence of Arabia oh. is the editor on Masters of the Universe. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Was they, it? They put some money into it. Well, I so I was into the in the the He Man cartoon originally. As a little same kid, here, and, same the, here. And, and then the Masters of the Universe, yeah, I, I I thought that was super cool, and then and then later I was like, there's like scenes about them eating like a buckets of chicken and not being confused. Like I think when they came into the normal world, it was like, what the hell is this? As a kid, I didn't realize all it, the but, music yeah. stuff, yeah. all the like the key stuff with the. You know. Oh yeah, 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 the key. Oh my gosh, yeah, what a weird movie. 
it is it is a very 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 bizarre movie um one difference so over the years as we've talked movies one big difference that's shown even though i think it, it complements our conversations is and we point this out to each other every time we talk about this i come from a very like library-ish constant multiple movie references and you come at it at a more I always felt like a pure inspiration point. Like when you, what did, what did you go to college for? Well, originally I did, I started as mechanical engineering because that's what my dad was. And then I switched over after my freshman year, I switched over to religious studies, which is essentially comparative religion, religious history degree. And it wasn't until towards the end of that, um, that I, I had all these ideas in my head and different, you know, I kind of learned the power of stories at that point. Um, uh, mythology and, and, um, and fables and whatnot. So, so then I was like, well, movies seem like the modern way to express stories. So maybe I'll just pursue that. But I didn't, I certainly didn't have, which I, which, you know, I didn't have an inherent passion for cinema or anything like that. It just wasn't cultivated in my house, you know, and, and my, and I would actually say my being raised by a mechanical engineer, like artsy was like kind of a was for sure a pejorative term in our house. It was like there was okay. there were like sci there were like scientists and and there were logical people and then there was like artists. And so we it wasn't until I got as I started to get older, my dad started to develop appreciation for he tried to he started trying to go to art museums and try to develop appreciations for things like that. And he would take us to sometimes he would take us to I mean sometimes he would he, he would dig dig deep and take us to Phantom of the Opera tickets or something. he's something he just fell in love with randomly but i never made sense to me because in, in all other other regards he seemed to denigrate art uh and artistry right. but but so he so 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 for me growing up it was like i even to this day i have trouble thinking of myself as an, any kind of artist um even though i'm obviously working in an art form but in some ways i, I my brain i'm maybe more of a craftsman or something. I, I i i don't know um I mean, craftsman's a good word for it. I was thinking uh, on the topic at hand, part of the reason I thought you'd be good to talk about uh, Yuval Noah Harari and the storytelling that he talks about in there is I always thought of it in terms of everyone's always looking for a lateral move into storytelling and like movie nerds constantly copying. Uh, there, the other thing I was thinking about in prep for this talk was this thing my high school English teacher told me that at the time annoyed the shit out of me. But um he, he said that there is two forms of, of uh, inspiration for art, and it was mimicry and worship. Mm. And that might just kind of, I, that it just stuck in my head as like a difference between the two of us over the years, even though, again, I think they complement each other and they're not, there's a lot of concentric circles to it, too. There's a lot of overlaps, but I just always found there's a much more direct way whenever you're figuring out story that doesn't involve how someone else has done this a thousand times before and, and, you know, just doing the same thing over and over. You always seem to come at it at a more bottom line. What, what are we doing with this story too? Well, yeah, I, I think that I, I certainly thematically, and I'm finding this as kind of a pattern as I'm taking general meetings and scripts are being sent to me. Uh, I, I'm, I can, I can, I'm starting to pick up a pattern of movie-ish, tropes uh character tropes and things that are uh just come up over and over and over again even from established writers and they're not and then when i have conversations with them or the producers about it i, I can i'm talking about psychology and i'm talking about what, what 
ways to actually develop this human being that's the protagonist of this movie uh, in ways that are kind of philosophical or thematic. And they're referencing, they seems like they're, and this is not for everybody, but, but I, to your point, I think a lot of, within the industry as a whole, uh, they tend to be reflecting whatever movie did kind of well on Disney Plus last year or something. Like that's, that's sort of their touchstone of um, whether or not this particular moment works or this particular plot twist works is like, how does it compare to a, another movie that worked? And it's not in a, uh, some people like Tarantino do that in a way that's, it, it plays off of your expectations. Like he'll take a movie, mo you're expecting this, he knows this, the cinema moments so well that he can completely reverse them and shock you. And You're and, inventing you know, something new and you still have a 3D character behind it. Yeah, he's doing a remix essentially by playing off of our expectations. Most people are just doing, just doing the expectations. And I, I understand that. And, and to a certain extent, you know, on The Vessel, my first film, that was me completely trying to walk the tightrope of figuring out. And I, I didn't really have a blueprint for how that kind of movie would be structured necessarily or, you know, plot wise. It was such an odd uh, plot. It was, an, it was a plot that didn't really have a precedent in my mind that I knew about. Um, so so it was a bit of a creative tight tightrope that I was walking and, 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 and it didn't resonate as well with a lot of people sometimes. And so in the second movie, what I did was I... I I decided I was going to explore the themes of the character and the story that I cared about and, and, you know, issues of fatherhood and things like that. But I did it here in that sense. It was like, okay, there's a blueprint for these inspirational sports movies. So I did it here plot wise to uh, structurally to the plot that uh, these movies kind of t typically have. And uh, it was, the reality is I, it was much easier and a lot of, and everybody really responded to it because it's a, uh, it's it's a structure that they just worked for people and so i would say it was less creatively satisfying for me to do it that way um and it, it was it was much easier and it was less creatively satisfying uh but it just worked you know it's like a it's like a pepperoni pizza or something and and so i'm so, so then i guess so now going forward i think yeah now i'm trying to figure out like I, i've kind of touched both walls as i'm i'm feeling my way down this dark hallway and i kind of want to now it's, no okay how can i play more with the structure in a way that's that's interesting to me uh, on the things I do going forward. Well, how did it work? Like, was it, did you notice the audience reactions were different or just the going to Netflix and it seems more financially successful? What was, what was, what was the metric that it worked better, at least with audiences? Yeah. So it was, uh, so like with the vessel, I, you know, I don't know how many times I did a Q and A at a theater for three or four people, you know, and they're just, and there's, you know, a lot of times it was like, I don't really understand. Like, what is it about? How am I supposed to, what am I supposed to feel about this? I don't understand uh, people. And, and that was kind of on purpose. I like, it was, that was me kind of uh, trying to express my feelings after doing religious studies, which is like, I, I went into it thinking I was going to get all these answers. I came out with more questions than answers in, in the end, which is probably what a good education does in, in, in those fields uh and, and so i was so i i it was a, for me it was a movie about mystery and about how things don't really add up the way we expect sometimes but then a lot of people don't like that feeling like that that's a, I, what i realized there's some there's some people who really love that feeling but there's a lot of people who just don't like that feeling at all they want they want it to be a self-contained unit but they walk out and they they it added up to something for them and i understand that and we can talk more about i think that's that's that, definitely yeah. That that's that that, that taps into and so and so what I re, so then so then I'm like okay let me experiment with giving people exactly the feeling that they want to have in a closed up way that 
doesn't leave any open-ended questions at the end. Let me just see what that, let's see what happens. And uh, it's just an avalanche of emails telling me, oh, thank you so much for this. And this is the kind of movie we needed. And, and maybe a lot of it had to do with just post 2020. Uh, people just needed something, right. you know. Um, but what I found was, you know, um, I knew people liked these kinds of movies uh, that had kind of an uplifting, closed-ended structure to them. But I didn't realize that there's people that, like, needed these kinds of movies. For, just for, uh, and, and This is all going to play into, as we deep dive into this conversation later, too, like the need for storytelling, why... Um, or rethinking the points of points of storytelling too. What it was it supposed to? Um, what is the actual gain supposed to be for people in, in a, on a wide level or on a personal level, and the storyteller itself too? Yeah, and even on a real basic level, like you know, there's uh, there seems to be some evidence that's like you know they do psychology tests where they if they they show they two two different groups. One of them they show them a, a group of random images that have no real connection to each other. The other one they show them a sequence of images that have seem to have a logical sequence that connects to something and has a meaning you can kind of pull out and then at the end they ask everybody they have everybody pull you know how meaningful they feel their life is and the people who just saw the sequence of images that had seemed to have some sort of coherent meaning rate them their life as more meaningful you know and so there seems to be something there seems to be something to uh to providing a an experience that takes a bunch of that takes a bunch of disparate events and puts them in a logical way that in the end people can say that all that ran all everything that seems random about the world is it, it can all it all added up to this particular idea or meaning and that makes me feel like maybe there's some meaning to everything else you know i i think the last chapter of uh yuval noah harari's most recent book uh 20 21 lessons for the 21st century the second to last chapter i believe is called meaning and the whole point of figuring out, like, as the future happens and all the exponential changes start to happen to us, like, and the world changes drastically, the big issue we're going to have to figure out is what our meaning is, especially if something like work no longer becomes the main thing that we do. But I want to tie off on a bow, just going back some some narrative stories. Um, how did you get, how did you move to Austin and how did you get involved with the film scene there? I moved to Austin for school. For, I went to the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and then I, so I moved there in 2000, graduated in 05. And I wasn't really, I, I was, I spent a couple of years out of school, you know, I was a substitute teacher delivering pizzas and, uh, and all the while I was writing screenplays. You, even like while I was subbing, I got banned from a couple of schools because I got caught just sitting there just with, <laughs> with, with headphones, with headphones, writing, writing screenplays on my laptop while the kids were just doing whatever. Um, and, and so, uh, and, but really the, the first the real break into the film industry, which is where you and I have met, which, which was the tree of life. Um, my wife, Marley, I called to, uh, be a production office well, she got actually got called to be like a research assistant and then became the production office coordinator and then became Terry's assistant, Terry Malik. And, and then Terry, uh, and then I was, then I started doing editing intern, uh, like you, um, mm -hmm. and I did that for a few months and then eventually I just, uh, just started shooting little things for Terry and, um, for free, you know, just, a it was, he, he was doing me more of a favor than I was doing him. And, uh, and then in the end he, uh, after two years of doing that, I had a script that I wanted Asked him if he would send a Martin Sheen, and he did, and that became the vessel. So, that, that you do you you should tell that story. That is a great story. 
Well, yeah, so I had been, um, I had, because of my experience, because of my experience with uh, religious studies and reading all these books and studying ancient Greek and trying to figure out what's true and then coming out and not really having any idea what the hell is true, uh, I became really interested in near-death experiences because people would, I'd read about these people that just, their heart stops for 20 seconds or whatever on an operating table and they come out somehow enlightened and knowing, knowing at least for a period, they, and they end up knowing things that I didn't couldn't get from years of study or whatever. Um, so I, I start I started developing a story about a kid who drowns and, and wakes up again, has a near death experience. And I told Terry about it and he said, Oh, you should uh you know, you should talk to Martin Sheen about that, because he had a near death experience on Apocalypse Now. And so I said, Oh, okay, great. And so I spent two years writing the movie and writing I wrote a character <laughs> I wrote a character for for Martin. He had no idea I was two doing years that. Later. And two years later, I finished the script and I gave it to Terry on a Friday. And then uh, two days later, I was actually re-watching, uh, I think, my second or third screening of The Tree of Life. I was in a movie theater when I got a voicemail from Martin Sheen saying he read the script and, and he wants to do the movie. And so... Like, just a weekend. That, it was, that, it was, I love that story. No, it's nuts. And now, in retrospect, now I, it, every, it, it seems so... I just thought that's how things worked at that point. Like, it was like, oh, you said you write a good script, you send it to an actor, and they just say yes, like, they'll do it. And for no money, essentially. Uh, I realized, no, that's not how it works at all. Um, and, and so even when, when I send people good scripts, they still want a lot of money. And um, and so it, uh, but that was my first, that was my intro to, and then, and then, and then it took two years to get the financing. Uh, I didn't realize that. I thought as soon as we had Martin Sheen, everything would just fall together. And so, we, you know, we just kind of scra right. scraped together the money to make this low budget movie. And, um, and, and that was that. Martin was amazing. Uh, and I, I don't know. I just, I'm very grateful to him and Terry just for the role. In that. Well, another component I remember from this time was um, you early on when red came out, made the investment on a red camera mm -hmm. and then you became a go-to shooter on top of shooting for Terry. You were shooting like for a lot of people in town. Like I, I have a very, I think I've mentioned this on another episode. I have a very fond memory of you wanting to do when I was still projectionist at the galaxy and we had the, one of the first digital theaters, you wanted to test your footage on the big screen. So we hooked it up to the digital projector. Yeah. 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 No, I was super into it. I, cause the thing is, uh, I was, because I'm a, my dad is an engineer, I'm fairly mechanically inclined. I, I, I like technology and, and gadgets and things like that. And so, so when you're first starting out, like just, just trying to make something that looks like a movie is a challenge. You know, you just, you just want it to look like something that could possibly be up on a, on a theater screen. And that's like kind of, the, that is almost as uh it's an easier obstacle at the beginning than writing an entire screenplay that could hold up and for two hours and captivate an audience for two hours. So, so my first, you know, I, I started shooting, uh, I started shooting commercials and, you know, small music videos. And, um, and so, it was a perfect segue for me. That's actually how Terry asked me to start shooting stuff for him. I told him I had that camera and he invited me to go uh, shoot some of the, well, he actually invited me to go watch Doug Trumbull shooting the, the some of the space uh, special effects, skunk works. the skunk work stuff. And then I told, while I was there, I told Terry I had the camera in my car and he was like, oh, why don't you shoot uh, some little bubbles uh, in a watch, in a clock face or something. And I was like, okay. And so I just started doing weird stuff like that that actually is in the movie. Uh, and it's even it's funny because all those little silly little it's like me blowing with a straw like bubbles and uh that, that's like even it's in the trailer of the movie and stuff and so um so that's how yeah that's how i got it started and then i eventually uh on to the wonder i shot for two weeks with eugene richards following javier bardem around i was just basically supporting eugene 
uh, I was his, his AC slash uh, human tripod because the camera was pretty heavy, and so I, <laughs> I, so I was just kind of holding it up for him while he would operate. Um, and that, yeah, that, that was... you were also like a go-to for like this isn't like someone just to shoot like just shoot for shooting sake. You were like it was it was a time when like the resolution of a red still was the go- the best digital camera, mm-hmm. and like it was right before Vipers came out or something like that. But I just remember you were the go-to for like you you mentioned the technical stuff, but you also aesthetically learned a lot. Like you were a go-to to have like aesthetically pleasing shooting, like good big screen, well lit shooting. Yeah, I think I I became fairly proficient. Um... In cinematography and uh i i was i think i had i continued on that path of just just if i had just focused exclusively on cinematography i probably could be making a decent little living uh um at that who knows there's so much there's so much involved in becoming a big cinematographer usually be you know the luck of just land you know connecting with a director that happens to have a big hit you know that's usually how dps end up breaking out um but yeah, I was on that. I I did feel like I got technically proficient to the point where like I I don't I couldn't have worked. I mean, I could have shot a feature, but I, I don't. I wasn't. I had never done that, and um, I don't have the muscles. Like something you were really wanted to do either. Too. No, it wasn't, and and it it was just. I really admire the guys that do that, and like Chago, who's my DP. He's like he just loves lighting. He love, and I did too. I really loved it, but I but I but to me, it was it was a, a tool for serving. This, this other medium you know um and so uh but I, I did get to the point where at least i i knew enough to where i could give my dp the tools he needed to do his job you know and and so that uh, i think that um visually i think that my stuff i was able to do more with a smaller budget because i i, I kind of knew the tricks and how to block things and, uh, and put people you know in the right place based on where the windows were and things like that schedule right. you know scheduling the, for the light that's all stuff that i learned from terry um yeah that that really served me well maybe we should trans trans uh, transition into blue miracle from this because you and i haven't really talked even since you've been developing it or maybe yeah. there was a little bit of overlap but yeah maybe yeah I, wa- I finally wa- or i watched it the other day um one of the first things that came up to me i do remember you being kind of a, um even though i mentioned there wasn't a lot of movie influences like i remember you being kind of a spielberg kid you mentioned indiana jones earlier and there did seem like a little bit of Jaws on the boat, like how you shot the boat. Yeah, well, that's I I wish it could have been like Jaws on the boat. I mean, the thing is that the I, I that Jaws was certainly like the the influence that if you're gonna do stuff on a boat with people fishing, it ends up uh, if you want to create any kind of suspense, Jaws is a touchstone for that. Uh, well, I, it wasn't even just the suspense; it was like just the shakiness, the waterline, like just right, like, right, everyone right. who says on the boat, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then and even the even the aesthetic of the the kind of boat that the captain had and stuff is it was that was what I was thinking. Yeah, it's definitely more it reminiscent of, of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I've always loved Spielberg. I, I think Spielberg is it, it, he's oh he, he's sort of the gold standard. He's the gold standard for wanting to make people feel a specific way at a specific moment, and he can just do that. Uh, and and he so he he's kind of the king of the aesthetic. That was the second aesthetic that I've been exploring, which is. I, if I, I don't, I don't want, I want everybody to deteriorate at the same moment. I want everybody to laugh at the same moment. I just want to see how that works. Uh, and that's, uh, you could argue that's, that's the quality, that's the antithesis of what maybe great art does. Great art has an ambiguity built into it that everybody brings their own interpretation, their own experience and whatever. Uh, I don't know. Um, this is, I think what Spielberg does in some ways is more, it's, 
it's more akin to I don't know maybe a a, a concert or roller coaster or a you know something something where you're trying to get everybody in sync. Uh, you're trying to get everybody on the same wavelength at the same moments, and they all take the same the kind mass of ride. Appeal versus the individual appeal. Well, th that's a fine that's a fine line to parse those things because mass appeal. You know the thing is like I don't know a a, a quarter pounder is a mass appeal. Okay, and so there's things that are just kind of shitty that are the, the, the lowest common. I, I like to take the lowest common denominator out of the, like, well, yeah, you're talking about mass, mass appeal. So it could be, it, it, it's, it's been on my brain, obviously, since we got theaters taken away from us last year. Yeah. 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 It, it, the, the thing is there, there's, there seems sometimes there's mass appeal. that's just like, just shitty. I mean, there's just stuff. It's just so simplistic. That's like, you can market it hard enough and everybody will go see it or participate. In it. But I, I, I guess the, the thing to me that separates somebody like Spielberg from, I don't uh, I don't want to say I, I don't want to but you know emoji movies or whatever it is that lots of people see that's just uh, it's just fodder you know or, or like right um I, I think he actually you, without any marketing without any you can you can actually put a, a group of people in a room with and screen one of his movies especially some of the, er, the earlier work and he, people will predictably get excited at the same moments laugh at the same moments cry at the same moment uh and that's a and that's a very specific and he knows that he knows what he's he knows how to control their journey in a way uh that's his that's his, his goal that's very very different from somebody like terry malik or you know any a24 film or whatever that that's like if you, you don't that's not what kubrick was trying to do with 2001 you know he's not trying to make he's he, he everybody goes into that and has a different experience based on their where they are in their life and maybe even has you can even watch it ten years later have a different experience and you can have whereas I watch Indiana Jones I show my kids the trilogy and I feel exactly the way I did when I was eight I, I, the same fun moments the same excitement the same the thing the moments still work the way they did on me when I was a kid um, that's not true of 2001 when I go back and watch 2001 now I feel different than when I saw it in film school. Well, you're getting to something that the other reason I want to talk about this and like this, the subject is a big ass subject. Uh, like you, you mentioned before we, we started recording, like this is the whole of human humankind and like storytelling is mentioned in some of these books, but I have been on a massive, you could probably say it's a midlife crisis rethink on why storytelling is important. And I always thought of it as, what you were describing is you wanted to thread the line. You wanted to do something that was appeal to a lot of people, but said something new, said something different. And there's a lot of things I've been thinking the last few years of like, let's just call it the highbrow look at how to make art is not, I don't know, there's a lot of different reasons what it's supposed to reward. And I'm not sure it has the same appeal anymore to, to me just because like, it seems like you're trying to impress someone as opposed to actually intrinsically tell a story that's important to you or trying to engage everyone around you with it, whether it's in your intermediate circle or as media grows and you, your voice can reach more people if you're trying to get to them. I'm just, this, this, the reason I want to have this conversation is I've been in a mid rethink and I'm probably going to find different topics to talk about this with multiple different friends on, but I'm just trying to dive back into what the fuck the point is of storytelling. 
and especially in a, with with technology growing and it, it reaching more people and what is good storytelling anymore you know well i think one thing that i think that one one thing i learned from studying religion was that what stories can be is a mode for organization a mode for I mean, you, Harari talks about this a lot. Is is that this is a key to what we're, why we're talking about? Yeah, and it's the idea that shared shared mythologies help us cooperate with strangers, essentially. So, it, our society is has a level of complexity that's not really sustainable without some sort of shared stories. So, so typically, if, if, if you know, if you're a hunter gatherer society. There's, you know, the roughly 130 people that you could know intimately and trust and hold accountable for at any given, you know, on any given day. So that's why those communities mm -hmm. end up staying at that size. But to get beyond that 130 people, for me to be able to trust some strangers, I have to feel some sort of psychological connection with them uh, in order to cooperate with them. And so, you know, it's obvious examples are things that Harari talks about is like money, uh, Money is money is a shared mythology that helps us cooperate with strangers. He uses the term the intersubjective intersubjective reality. It's not a objective reality. It's not a subjective reality. It's a shared subjective reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just something we just all agree on, and that's and that's the only thing that makes it real. And money is like that. Um, re, you know, religion is like that to a certain extent. Uh, um, nationalism is like that. I think that uh, those are the big three he he pins down to. I have a real quick. I have two big passages I want to read, but one real quick one. Um, this is from uh, Twenty One Lessons. Uh, Humans control the world because they can cooperate better than any other animal, and they can cooperate so well because they believe in fictions. Poets, painters, and playwrights are therefore at least as important as soldiers and engineers. Yeah. I, I mean, as, <laughs> as, as a, the thing is, like, it's, it's, it's so it's difficult for me because, because as a as a filmmaker, it's hard for me to to say that I'm you know more valuable than whoever's designing the COVID vaccine or or but but I do understand to his point though the the scientists execute the goals that we as a society deem valuable and so without without the kind of value systems that we've developed over the centuries, over the millennia, um, through our shared myths, why even make a COVID vaccine? Like, why not? And the thing is like, there's a, there's a story, there's a, there's a shared mythology and a shared story behind that's motivating the people who are designing the COVID vaccine, because you could just as easily say it, maybe our, if our shared universal story was more Darwinian, we would say, well, uh, these these viruses are an amazing opportunity to thin out the herd. For example, maybe our maybe if if our if our if our primary goal was to make make our make the human race as physically resilient as possible, we wouldn't do vaccines at all. We would just let the we would let the weaker ones be picked off, and that would be the end of that. And all the strong only the strong would would survive. That's a different. That's a completely different worldview that would lead to complete, right. the scientists taking totally different uh, paths. So, so the fact that we have we have this sort of idea of the universal value of human life, for example, means that we'll turn the world upside down and we'll shut down our economies and we'll do whatever to protect the most vulnerable members of society from something that we think, you know, they shouldn't die from. And so, but those are not, those are not objective truths. Like the idea of a universal human value is not an objective truth. That's something that we've, right. that's something that we've come to decide. And, and it's probably something that evolutionarily 
the communities that didn't believe in that didn't cooperate and they got they just got weeded out and the people who thought and then there's instances like currently where we shut down the world's economies or to to tramp down a virus but the easiest way to weave out weave in fictions like money and corporations that um, are the things that get keep us together to cooperate we start to in certain times value money more than people in terms of things like healthcare, where it's not universal healthcare is all around there, even though in theory we want to kill the virus. But if a person hasn't gained a certain amount of money to have health insurance, they're SOL because they haven't accrued enough value to justify that. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it, it is part of the fiction we believe and how we believe it. And it's not because it's not objective. It can get tricky. Well, so yeah. So, for example, that's a good. That's a good. That the universal healthcare is a good one to bring up. So, so you basically have two camps on this, and they're both telling themselves their own operating narrative. So, if you just ask people, should healthcare be free for everybody? Half the country says yes. Half the country says no. And it's because and it's like because it costs too much, and it might bring down the people that are still generating uh, value at that point, at least in a monetarily term. Well, I think that's the, the, that would be the counter argument. Well, this, the, well, actually I think that the myth that both people, they're, they're both operating from a specific story. So, so the people who say no healthcare should not be provided for free to everybody, they're operating from the story that the world is inherently fair, that you have, everybody has the opportunity to take care of themselves and everybody has a responsibility to take care of themselves. And it's actually immoral to expect other people to take care of you when you have every opportunity to take care of yourself. Right. And that's the operating, that's the operating underlying story uh, that that half of the, the country is working off. The other half is subconsciously working off of the operating story that life is not fair. The world, the universe is inherently random. And we ultimately, maybe we have control some say we don't like, to an extreme some some people argue like you know the sam harris types like argue that we don't even have free will but even if we have free will you don't pick your intelligence level you don't pick your genes you don't pick your parents you don't pick where you were born you don't pick any of these things so um so they're operating from the world is an inherently unfair place uh mythology and so we all have to compensate for the unfairness of life i think that i think that they're both they're both true in different contexts and so that the thing is you have uh we all know people who have been given every advantage and still fuck up all the time and don't, they don't take care of themselves and they self, they sabotage themselves and they, it doesn't matter what you do. You know, we all know those people and those are the standout, those are the standout examples that maybe the conservative side has in the, the back of their brain. They're always looking, they're always looking out for the cheaters, basically the, the freeloaders. Right. And that's, that's their biggest concern. And then on the other end, everybody knows, you know, they all know somebody who just had bad luck, who's a smart person who just, had a hard, you know, they, they fell on hard times. They got sick when they were, they weren't expecting it. And that's the, that's the operating image in their mind that they're, they're looking out for that person. And so, so we, we turn it into economic debates about uh, whether or not something is right. economically sustainable or whatever, but really one side just has a, a certain character in their head that they're looking out for. And the other side has a different character in their head that they're looking out for.
And the trick of all this is that everybody's narratives are based on their share or their limited worldview. So everyone has a narrative that if if they have a view that these people are are are, are not going to pull themselves up or are wasting opportunities because they've had a bunch of people in their lives that were that gave them that example, or they don't understand what they were given, they treat they treat that as something that was they earned versus someone on uh, else who's just seen struggle or in economic struggle this type and with and it it really is to be very charitable just based on what the examples people have seen. Um, well, I, well, actually, well, let me, just to expand also, I think, ahead. I think it's also, um, uh, you know, Jonathan Haidt has a good book called the righteous mind where he, he I love that book. It's amazing. Right. Uh, and, and so it, there seems to be some evidence that, you know, political affiliation is temperamental as well as based on personality type. And so I, I wonder, you know, if I, I, there's a certain kind of person in my life, like my dad, my dad is a rags to riches, pull himself up by his bootstraps kind of guy. He came from Cuba with nothing, put himself through college, did engineering, and and then became, ended up by the end of his life running a small drilling company in Houston or whatever. And so, and my dad uh, doesn't really have a lot of patience for people who make bad decisions. Like that's just, that's like, mm. he has a lot, a ton of, he has a ton of sympathy and love for people who fall on hard times. Zero patience for people who are just making bad decisions. It's just how he can't. He can't because it, I, I. If I'm being honest, isn't it tricky to define bad decisions though? Uh, I think you know it when you see it. I think you know. You, I think we all know it in our. Per, we know it in our personal life. When whenever you see somebody who like they they could if they just did X instead of doing Y, their life would be a lot I just easier. Think b- bad decisions compound bad decisions. That's that's that's, that's absolutely so, right. Like, if someone's not in a good position in the first place, then they'll make bad, a bad decision on time. It, it, Sorry, continue your Well, yeah, that. but but every like I said, everybody has a black sheep in their family, even the rich people. They all have they all, right. they all they all have the one black sheep that doesn't matter how many opportunities that kid's been given, they still they're always the one getting bailed out and you know, even if it could be the senator's son who just always gets bailed out of everything or whatever. So, uh so there are people, you know, this is an archetype. This is a this is a prodigal son archetype. I mean, this is the, it's built into the fabric of our humanity that, that that everybody has different temperaments and and it could be that bad decisions in our society are just, they're just decisions. It's a personality type that doesn't really fit our society. So, I mean, they, they could be somebody who in a, in a, in a warrior tribe, that guy might be the best warrior ever, but, right. but in our, in our modern society, that's very in, intellectual. And, and, uh, that guy ends up driving uh, his car into a ditch. Cause he's just, he's just a thrill seeker. You know what I mean? That's, that's that. So it's just hard to, to your point, bad decisions might just be, might be the least optimal decisions for our current setup. It, it, it might be uh, the way to look at it. But so, 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 so my dad, for example, to, to tie this back to movies, he hates movies about people, self-destructive characters, like, which is, that's the whole, that's the A24 model. That's the whole indie, the whole indie film art film right. world. The art house film world is, is the character is its own, the protagonist is his own obstacle you know that's raging bull that's there will be blood that's all these the the, the movies what we what we say complex characters it's usually characters who in some way or another are they're they're contributing to their own demise in in ways complex psychology that doesn't always know the way out of a of a situation yeah and and maybe it's their their you know phantom thread or they're sabotaging their own their own relationship in ways that has nothing to do with it. they don't get they don't have cancer there's not an asteroid heading to the earth they're just their own decisions is the source of the of the drama. Uh, so so guys like my dad really, really dislike that sort of thing because that's because uh, they just get frustrated about it. And, and so there's a segment of, of people that like 
it, it, they like movies where the, the main character is just a, it's just Will Smith being a nice guy dealing with some really hard shit that's coming from outer space. And so the problems are external. The problems are completely a good guy making normal, rational decisions in the face of external adversity. And I think that the, uh, my, my feeling is that maybe that people that are temperamentally right gravitate towards more of that kind of story because that's how they see the world. They see the, the world as a series of external obstacles that they make good decisions to navigate and ultimately triumph in the end. Okay. I think that people that are more temperamentally left it, see they, they tend to be the ones to be more attracted to the complexity of characters. And they, I think that's one of the operating factors is that they, they seem to acknowledge that blaming people for their own decisions is maybe a little faulty because sometimes people make decisions they can't even control. And so, so even the control of your own behavior is an illusion. And, and, and I'm sorry, I, I'm talking at the extreme ends of things. There's tons of overlap uh, we, we, talk, we talk about right and left. It's a very simplistic, but there's tons it's, of it's tricky because I'm trying to be very magnanimous about this and trying to like talk more. But I, I'm, I'm on that side. I agree. I, 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 I agree with more so much of that. But at the same time, I'm like these. There's different. Different people have different. Different smart people have different narratives and different reasons to believe what they believe and are justified in those beliefs. And it's hard. And it's this, Harari talks a lot, a little bit about like all this stuff is going back to the basic philosophical search for truth. And like, it's, it is a weird objective. Truth seems like something should be easy and it's not. No objective truth is not, it's a, it's not true. I mean, and we, we complain, we, we blame it on CNN versus Fox news or something, but I think it's actually, it's, right. it's more hardwired. Like the reason people like CNN versus the reason people like Fox news, those, those echo chambers are exacerbating these temperamental differences, but I think, I think fundamentally I can, I can see it in my own family. I, I have, I have very, very conservative family members, very liberal family members. I've, I'm in Austin. So I'm in the heart of Texas, which is very conservative yeah. as you know, but I also surrounded by very liberally minded people all the time. And, and they're temperamental. They're actually psychologically temperamentally different. Um, uh, my dad, the, they, not just my dad, but the really conservative people in my life don't particularly like dwelling on darker subjects. They don't really particularly like, uh, delving into childhood traumas or anything like that. That's just not something that they just don't, they don't really enjoy that sort of thing. They like, they like lighter music. They like things that are just like, what's the point of thing, worrying about all that stuff? Um, and well, you know, we, we seem to have a little bit of overlap in some authors we're reading. Have you read any Daniel Kahneman? No. What do you write? Uh, he, he won a Nobel for economics, even though he's a psychologist, uh, oh. but, uh, his, his big book I'm finishing reading is called thinking fast and slow. But one of the things he talks a lot about is the importance of not in arguments, the specifics of the arguments, but the framing of the arguments. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the big issues I have with the right left divide right now is it's badly framed. It's just very limitedly framed and it's framed in a way that gets people at each other's throats in a way that the person doing the framing, even though they don't know they're maybe doing it is doing it just because it gets them more hits. It gets mm -hmm. them more views and they're just trying to make more money and they're incentivized to make money that way. But I do want to start to work this back around to Harari. And I have like a really long passage, so bear with me, but it goes with what I'm talking about with narratives. And I think, cause it's funny cause I foresaw when we were going to have this conversation, we're going to have a, a more completely interesting, different debate. And we, we can, at least what I thought we we're going to get into, but let me read this passage first. 
Um, this is from Homo Deus. Animals such as wolves and chimpanzees live in a dual reality. On the one hand, they are familiar with objective entities outside of them, such as trees, rocks, and rivers. On the other hand, they are aware of subjective experience within them, such as fear, joy, and desire. Sapiens, in contrast, live in triple-layered reality. In addition to trees, rivers, fears, and desires, the sapiens world also contains stories about money, gods, nations, and corporations. As history unfolded, the impact of gods, nations, and corporations grew at the expense of rivers, fears, and desires. There are still many rivers in the world, and people are still motivated by their fears and wishes, but Jesus Christ, the French Republic, and Apple Incorporated have dammed and harnessed the rivers and have learned to shape our deepest anxieties and yearnings. Since new 21st century technologies are likely to make such fictions even more powerful, to what we're going to talk about in a bit. To understand our future, we need to understand how stories about Christ, France, and Apple have gained so much power. Humans think they make history, but history actually revolves around the web of stories. The basic abilities of human individual humans have not changed much since the Stone Age, but the web of stories has grown from strength to strength, thereby pushing history from the Stone Age to the Silicon Age. Yeah. There's a reason that our stories, can, like, this is all an argument, or... All of the conflicts in um, in human in human life is stories fighting each other, for prom for, for um, I don't know just for value, for what we value. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's uh, you know, we went from uh, fighting over resources uh, in the maybe more in more primitive societies to uh, they are competing stories because I think these stories these stories evolve based on their fitness um, is what I think. And, and the, the stories that allow for the, uh, the, the more widespread cooperation and the more, uh, you know, you, really the scientific revolution is, is, is a story uh, and where we, we basically left behind uh, matters of the spirit or, or the supernatural Like we left those aside and put all of our eggs in the, uh, manipulation of the material world and hmm. that story that focus the material world as we can gain as we can figure it out at any given moment at, yeah material measure. basically what can be measured by instruments is what we've it's matter uh that we um and that particular story has proven to be such a huge evolutionary advantage that uh it's very difficult for tibet to compete with you know with the west or, or with with what china's doing now it's a different the different cultural emphasis uh at the end of the day it, it doesn't matter if taoism was a a better psychotechnology for achieving some sort of peace of mind they you can't really compete with uh with drones and missile strikes i mean we have we just have uh we have the, the the manipulation of the material world has proven to be such a, an evolutionary advantage for survival that it's kind of drowned out all the competitors. And so, uh, you know, the, one of the, the a really striking example of that of how ideologies can literally come into uh, into contest is the 20th century between capitalism and free market capitalism and communism. I mean, my family's from Cuba, so uh, communism was a it, it wasn't just an intellectual experiment for my family. It was like they actually had everything taken away from mm -hmm. them and um and it completely demoralized an entire i mean millions and millions of people not to mention the people that died from that experiment and so communism proved itself to be communism proved itself to be an idea that worked that seemed like it worked intellectually on paper but didn't really come into line with human nature so it it, it lost the uh it, it lost that the battle of 
the test of time, essentially, as far as what is best for people. Now, capitalism is now potentially proving to be something that's really great for people and may, at the expense of the environment or the expense of, uh, you know, wildlife or maybe even the expense of our own personal health. Uh, you could argue that capitalism, our, our, our purely capitalist materialist uh, narrative is wreaking havoc on our bodies and our environment. You know, that's a valid criticism. No, I mean, it, it's, it's tricky just because like I, I, another writer I like who died uh, last year, David Graeber, who's kind of a strong uh, socialist, um, I think he was the one that made this point. I might be remember this quote from other, someone else, but capitalism's never going to die. Capitalism is basically trading goods and services, right? And right. we're probably going to be doing that depending on what we value. Like, um, um, I don't know, the biggest thing, Harari's book, one of the things that reading it, I mean, the first one is called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, is it makes you think wider in terms of short-term versus long-term where like what you're talking about with uh eastern cultures and maybe uh, are the religious practices going to help have healthier minds versus drone strikes is drone strikes a short-term success or is and is Taoism a long-term success in that regard just because it, if you have happy happier healthier people maybe they procreate more and maybe their population flourishes and maybe they live longer lives but or is the brute strength going to be the thing that kills them all off and, and gets around like this book helps you think in long terms and in which is going to help and when we're talking about storytelling just because the idea of stories lasting longer and making narratives that affect multiple people too uh yeah that's a good question as far as ultimately i mean we're even with the capitalism socialism communism fascism i mean we're still talking about a span of at best hundreds of years uh, experiment uh, it's not obvious what will last a thousand years what will last five thousand years um which which of these kind of you know they call them psychotechnologies are ultimately going to be the thing that that survives the most i think uh to your point yeah i think i think capitalism at its purest form is yeah free market capitalism is just people voluntarily exchanging goods and services i think when people get angry about capitalism they're usually I think what they're, they're they're usually conflating pure market capitalism with uh, with, with sort of crony capitalism. Was it's like once you once yeah. once once the once the capitalism is infiltrating the state and it's going back and forth. So then the the people in, at the or top, just completely inefficient capitalism where like people are, are getting rewarded for grifting. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, like for for me, I I don't I personally don't like the fact that people can make some of our smartest minds are coming out of the universities going to figure out how to play with like derivatives and finance and things like that. I don't know what they're just, they're just essentially professional gamblers and not just professional gamblers, but then they can influence the casino rules by buying out senators and things. So I think that's really what people are complaining about. Usually it's not just the, it's not the fact that people are able to buy and sell freely. It's, it's really that the, the, at the once you get to a, above a certain uh, success level, you're able to change the rules. And, um, and that's, that's not fair essentially. So. I think we, 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 we might just lean into the fact that we've lost movies a long time ago. Um, <laughs> back to the communism thing. The way I've always been thinking about it is like, uh, cause all the things that everyone has told me I'm supposed to like about communism and socialism 
um, and, and then makes other people pissed off. I've always just thought of as a healthy safety net. Mm-hmm. Do you conflate those two or do you think they're still separate? Well, so, so to, to, to tie it into specifically to stories and how it motivates people, I think that, that is, uh, there's, there, it's when conservatives think of socialism, they're taking, they're thinking of Cuba and the Soviet union. When liberals think of socialism, they're thinking of France and Sweden and the, the places where it seems to be working. And I would say that a place like Cuba and a place like the Soviet Union, you're seeing it kind of you're seeing it now in Venezuela. Whenever the whenever force is the dominant way to make people follow the ideology, my argument okay. I would argue that it's a, it's actually a bad story. So the story so I, I you did bring it around, Julio. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. You brought it around. <laughs> so, so, so if you can convince everybody to all want to pitch in and support and take care of the weakest in our community um, and build schools where they need them and, and pay for universal health care, that requires a very, very powerful story that makes the rich guy care about the poor guy and it makes the healthy person care about the sick person. That requires a, a powerful story. And whenever you don't have a good enough story... You have to you have to bring in the KGB. You have to get you have to get people to spy on each other, and you have to have gulags because your story sucks and nobody's buying it. And so that's the that's the 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 goals of socialism. The goals of socialism can make sense if you have a story that convinces everybody that this is the ethical way to live. If you don't have mm-hmm. that, and it's and it has to be done with force, then you're just a shitty storyteller, and you haven't figured out how to motivate the people to your ends. Well, Harari makes the point that um, when going back to the terms of fictions, that these are some of the most basic fictions, fascism, um, capitalism, um, uh, communism, all these isms like and the thing is, if they're not clearly told, then everyone brings their own value to them. But going way back to when you were talking about your own work, I think all this, the, the efficacy of a story is apparent, you know what I mean? Like when you were saying, figuring out like, does the vessel do more success than a uh, blue miracle? Like the proof's in the pudding sometimes and you can you can tell the efficacy of it. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I think like, I mean, even just, I, I again, for, if the goal is to get people to, to watch your story and for it to resonate with them in some way, then there's no comparison. It's like, I don't know. I, I we, we the vessel was like in twenty theaters for a weekend, and Blue Miracle was seen by fifty million people. Say, so. uh, that doesn't mean that it's great. It just means that it 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 it, it was it was it was mimetic. It was like it kind of had it was it had a mm. it, it had a stickiness to yeah. it. Blue Miracle had a stickiness to it that spread. Uh, and that's not a, that doesn't mean that there's things that are shitty that shouldn't be spread. You know, there uh, I don't know maybe election fraud accusations are seems to be sticky. Uh, that's maybe not the best thing. I yeah. might be confusing scale with e- efficacy. It depends what the goals are. My goal, my goal was to see if I could make something that would resonate with as many people as possible. And I think that I did. I used the tropes of the genre. I used the, the structure of the genre combined with my particular influence on meaning and and emotion. So I, I tried to make them. I tried to make the story meaningful and make it about fatherhood and things like that. And that partic- I, I used the vehicle of the uplifting sports drama uh structure i use that 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 was my vehicle to deliver a meaningful idea which is not it's not meaningful it's not you know it's not nietzsche 
but it's uh, it, it was it was something that people were like oh yeah everybody I have a father I, I that I maybe don't connect with as much as I could things like that. you know it's it, it's simple but it was just it was sort of a little experiment to see mm. uh, the if the structure works and it, and it did that that structure is very very sticky for a specific. Uh, not, not even that specific, actually. Like it, it crossed, uh, you know, it, it crossed a lot of viewing boundary, viewing circles uh, through Netflix, all the way from people who, people who watch the obvious things, uplifting Disney movies, all the way to people who watch like The Crown and Queen's Gambit. It ha happened to span that. Uh, it probably, I don't think it, I don't think it crossed into the A twenty four crowd. It didn't like it didn't cross into the art house crowd because that's not what they're interested in at all. Because that 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 structure for them is uninteresting, and I understand why. Um, but. Uh, but no, so it was. I do. I it was effective in the goals that I had to see how it. it, it and so uh, you know, I don't know what lessons you take from there, but I, I do think um, that's the nature. If you if you want a story that appeals to a lot of people, uh, there there are certain things that work and there are certain things that just don't. And so if you look at as as fascinating as all the A twenty four films are. If you look them up, most of them don't make any money. Uh, I don't even know. Like, there seems like there's a, there's two, you know, one or two movies a year that keep that place in business. Uh, the you know the Ari, what's his name, the, the Ari Aster. Ari Aster, you know, that guy's like financing that whole place or something. You know, but uh, but but the reality is like if you compare those things to like whatever iteration of the the next Godzilla thing is, uh, that's not interesting at all, and you've seen it a hundred times. It's not. There's no comparison uh, to well, viewership. It's, it was a tricky question to ask you just because we're talking about um, when we're using the, these books to talk about storytelling in the macro and like in terms of like hundreds and thousands of years, like maybe there's only going to be really, even though cinema was invented for this last century or technically two centuries ago, um, there's probably going to be very few lasting works that actually survive. But the ones that the ones that do survive, like, it's going to be weird being that like, I don't know, the Marvel universe is the thing that's going to, we're going to be hearing about 500 years from now. And it's going to be mythologized. Yeah, it's, like, absolutely. Yeah. It could be a thousand years from now. Somebody could dig up the civilization and think those are our gods that we, we used to worship, you know, uh, Hulk and, and you hope Superman. it's something like ET or the Godfather, but it's maybe, maybe not. And, well, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not, and I'm not, I'm really not trying to pass value judgment on that. I'm just saying like when we're talking in these macro terms, like the journey and the struggle to tell our stories is, you know, it's, it's transitory. It's just going to be like what we do day to day and what lasts beyond us. Um, sticking with books that have been on my brain for the last four years. Are you familiar with Ernest Becker and the book, the denial, the denial of, death? of death? Yeah. I remember I read that one. Yeah. Denial of death's been on my brain a lot just because this idea of like we make big stories supposedly, he says, because it's just like wanting to be glorious in battle or trying to do something and any kind of accomplishment that makes people talk about us so that we become bigger than ourselves. And it's a compulsion to survive death so that our memory survives death. There seems to be an element of the storytelling I've been thinking about that is a reason, is a motive for why we tell stories. At least maybe I'm only telling stories. No, no, I think it's absolutely true. I, I, because I, I remember, for example, when I, uh, I remember when I was making the vessel. So I, I, I got the move. I had, I put my whole heart into writing that script for two years. Got Martin Chain attached. I was getting ready to, you know, I, I had started, I cobbled some money together, and I literally remember telling uh, AJ Edwards, who's a mutual friend, obviously, uh, past guest too. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and he, I remember telling him over whiskey when I was just like, hey man, like. If anything ever happens to me, I want you to go make the vessel for me. 
and I didn't have kids at the time. I didn't have anything, but for, like in my heart, something about that movie was like a part of me that could live on. And would, and whenever we, we shot it, it was like these hard drives were like sacred until they actually got out into the world. Somehow it was like, this represents something that I can like give back to the world. Um, now that seems ridiculous to me. Like now in retrospect, it's just like, that's a very, uh, it's a very romantic idea of what our art does. And I think that's a strong motivating factor for people. I think at the end of the day, we're all, we all want to know that we're leaving something beyond, you know, something that'll outlast us. Uh, I, I get a little depressed when I think about something like, uh, it's just comparing movies to other art forms. It's like, it's probably the, the art form it's, it's the, it has the, the widest appeal and will probably have the last, the, the shortest impact, like the last, shortest lasting power, just because, uh, but it's by its nature. I mean, we go back and watch something from most people can't even go watch something from the seventies. Say, you know, like the average person, they go back and they watch stuff and go. Ahead. Do you really think that? Oh yeah, yeah. My thing is that it's, it's a symptom of like how popular it is that everyone wants to try it. And even then at the same time, movies are so popular, but they're so expensive to do. Not ev everyone who wants to try it can't. So like we have, we're overwhelmed with the number of movies and attempts at stories. And um, I guess the cream's going to rise on, on that. It's, well, what I, what, I, what I mean is that just the, just the nature of how you consume that art form, it becomes dated because it's so technological. It's so technologically dependent that it becomes dated. So like, for example, you can go look at the statue, you can go look at the, you know, the La Pieta, and it still holds up. It doesn't matter. Like five thousand years from now, a well-done sculpture. It's it's that's an art form that can only be appreciated by a very small number of people at any given moment from very up close. So it's it's location dependent. It's it can't it can't be multiplied, but you know infinitely into a billion DCPs or whatever. And so that particular art form it has lasting power because it's not technologically dependent at all. I mean, you can go, you can still go look at this, at the Sphinx and it's still impressive. Uh, books are less technologically dependent. Like language is a technology that changes over time. So, it, so books become like, it's harder to read Cervantes or, you know, even Shakespeare now is difficult. Uh, but, if, but within reason, like those tend to last two, 300 years of influence. Um, especially if it has updated translations, movies, because they're so they're so dependent on technology and, and specific aesthetics that change constantly, uh, things just look dated. I mean, it, and you can even feel, you know, people say like, so, you know, Spielberg maybe isn't as he's not working at the level he was before. But, you know, if you look at his stuff, uh, part of it, maybe he's not, he, you know, maybe he's not quite as edgy and hungry as he was when he was 35. But but uh, but also his style is still looks like the 90s, like the stuff when you look at his movies. It still feels dated. Do you think the macro view applies to that though? Like I'm thinking of something like City Lights. Like if 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 they if I mean this is a question people 500 years from now are going to answer, but City Lights is going to be a time capsule of something that's ostensibly only um, 90 what uh, 92 years ago. I don't. I guess I just, I don't know, man. I think it could be an artifact that people. My math's wrong on that, by the uh, way. I think it could be an artifact that people. Like it could be an artifact that people study in art history programs and things like that. It's not going to be. I don't think people are going to be pulling up Schindler's List on Netflix 500 years from now. I mean, there's no Netflix, but you know what I mean. Like, I don't think that's something that's they're gonna, like we know. Like some the Netflix equivalent. I mean, how many people? How many people actually watch Citizen Kane? I mean, we do. Every film student does. Every you know, every film aficionado does. The average person is not watching Citizen Kane, and that's 
because there's always there's just something else and there's and the, the, oh it's black and white what is this or whatever uh, so I actually lose sleep over the fact that I'm pouring my heart into something that it has to be effective now and hopefully has some staying power I think Terry is working in a space where he's he's hoping philosophy students will be studying this 500 years from now uh, and as a result it has less widespread appeal you know um, but there's 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 a, there seems to be this weird sliding scale of how broadly effective is this art form? How, how like what's the mass appeal at any given moment, and how long will it actually last? I mean, the trick for me, I've been thinking a lot about um, the ec the economic incentive right now. Like, do I need to make art to make art, or do I need to make art to pay my bills? Right. Like, if you separate those two, then all these questions go out the window, and you can only make something as good as you can make it. If you're making it for your bills, then you got to make it for the person who is paying you, wants it to be, has a certain metric of success and, and is guessing at what's going to appeal to more people. Well, I, having done both, um, there's no right answer. I, 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 I did my first movie for myself. It was very, it was more uh, completely personal and, uh, and as a result, less people, were interested in that. And then I'd made a movie that was for more people and less for myself. Like I like, I, I don't actually like one better than the other. I, they're both different aspects of my tastes in some ways. Um, but it didn't feel like I was making my movie. If I had, I had people that were contributing. I had executives I had to answer to and I had different things. It didn't feel like it was like, that doesn't feel like that's a, somehow a slice of my unique soul or something you know um, how important is the personal so like because because in my head it seems like the personal is is just the motivation to make something the personal is extremely important i think that i like something to make it real or reflective of the world around you it's hard be, it's hard because in an art form there's the content and then there's the form and a lot of times when we're talking about really personal uh people tend when we're talking about really you know personal unique filmmaking a lot of times people are focusing on the form of it uh as opposed to the, the content necessarily sometimes it's both like sometimes terry's both you know maybe pt anderson's kind of both um a lot of times it's just it's it's maybe not particularly unique content but it's just uh it's just it's just a very distinct i don't know what's it uh i think wes anderson or tim burton are they have a unique you can just glance at a frame you know who made it uh, it doesn't matter even what this like what uh, Wes Anderson could make the Mighty Ducks the exact script of the Mighty Ducks, and it would look like a Wes Anderson movie, and it wouldn't. I be... would want to see that movie. Yeah, exactly. It would all be it all be totally symmetrical and tiny, and there'd be little, you know. Uh, and so there, so so it's hard to distinguish sometimes. I think that I, I for for me, I was exploring this last time, um, kind of like maybe my interesting emotional or psychological truths that I was interested in, but then through the aesthetic, that's sort of invisible. Like it doesn't really. I you can almost maybe even generic, you know, like the, the, it, nobody, it, nobody can just glance at a frame of blue miracle and be like, Oh, that's the most, I know the unique filmmaker that made that exact thing. And, and so that, and because the vessel was kind of like that, the vessel was more unique to me. Uh, and my specific influences from Terry and Chivo and stuff, obviously, but, but this was, but I chopped you know, the DP and I specifically set out to be like, all right, let's show. It's like from a sports analogy, it's like, let's, let's practice the fundamentals. Let's practice our layups. Let's practice our five foot jumper. Let's pray, you know, let's get practice some free throws. And then let's see, let's just see how, let's make sure we get that down. And then let's see what happens next. And that's what we did. And and now like, you know, 
I think we, I think we got the fundamentals down. Um, and, and it's, what's crazy is that millions and millions of people just want to see free throws and layups, you know, it's kind of crazy. So. One, one aspect from the book that I, when I was going through stuff we might want to talk about is the, like, as we're winding down, I want to talk about the exponential curve of progress, technology, interconnectedness. Um, writing stuff down, writing itself is only 5,000 years old. Like, mm. the, again, going to this whole idea, the, the Harari books really to give you this long rods perspective of humanity. Like he, he gives a lot of credit to the cognitive revolution in 70,000 years ago, which supposedly is the big thing that made us the dominant species on the planet between like 120 and 70,000 years. But the cognitive revolution is what really, there's still a lot of debate over where language started going interconnected with each other. Then the agricultural revolution is 30,000 years ago. And that's when we started getting centralized and telling and, and making cities and we started telling stories to each other, but it's only 5,000 years ago that we actually started writing shit down. Taxes and writing is comes from Samaria 5,000 years ago. And at that point, it's no longer contained, the way Harari describes it, is no longer contained to a human brain that has to retain this and then like spread it to another person. It's no longer verbal. You can write it down. It's a concrete thing that then can be expanded upon. And at that point, stories became... Um, more longer and more intricate. So if you do the exponential curve of the sophistication of our storytelling stories, not, and not just stories like the movies you're making or the ideologies the, that we live under, things are going to get more complex as they go along. Like, so movies are only hundred years old. Like movies, maybe they turn into something else different you know maybe they turn into some kind of form of virtual reality or 3d or something like that or maybe they stay 2d maybe they stay like maybe the theatrical it comes back and we it, we all need to watch the movies in groups and all need to have a shared audience experiences maybe they become much more solitary thing maybe they find a way of being literary maybe other mediums blend into it even more the med the medium has been is going to change drastically so and the trick of it all is just no one knows what the future is going to bring. That the the his last, most recent book, Twenty One Lessons from Twenty First Century, ends on this idea that the next century is going to be kind of because all this exponential growth is going to happen, and we fear change and we fear loss. Like it's going to feel scary, and we got to navigate this with stories. Uh, yeah, I think absolutely. The things are changing at a pace that people are not comfortable with. Uh, and there's the occasional personality type, the Elon Musk types that are just thrilled with all kinds of change and advancement. But even him, he even, he even like cautions against, he thinks AI is going to potentially take, right. o take over the world. So I think, uh, I think that it's, it, it, this is the first time in our history that the world can actually change within your lifetime. Like that didn't happen before. It was like, it, you know, it would, usually it was like the world would change over the course of three or four or five generations, maybe, or something uh, now I can change. The world's not even the same as it was a year and a half ago. I mean, we're right. you and I would be doing this in person a year and a half ago, probably. And um, but now this is a perfectly acceptable, I think, in some way advantageous because I can do this anytime. We can 
just jump right. on. And this is this has become a way for connecting. I vouch for it being advantageous. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's great. And there's a there's a loss that accompanies any kind of you know there's a the 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 interpersonal connections, but but the advancements trumped it. Yeah, it's a good question because things are changing very quickly. I mean, it's, technologically things are changing, uh, and actually you see how our the stories that kind of helped help us get to this level of social complexity are kind of falling apart pretty pretty fast it feels like they're so, not accurately reflect reflecting the world we see yeah and they're and and what's interesting is that you know uh we talk about how stories are kind of a way to create to enhance cooperation and and social cohesion mm -hmm. uh but you could you know you could actually argue that uh our kind of postmodern storytelling now which seems to take a like the, the real artists of our time kind of uh they they take a more cynical they kind of basically take all their power of storytelling to put a cynical eye on all of our existing institutions so right. so what you so what you actually have is like the the primary well you have you have the the you have the, the the avenger storytelling stuff that you talked about that's that's just that's just sort of industrial myth making i guess sure. but the actual the, the the people maybe we consider to be social commentators and um artists the the real hip thing to do now is to just uh deconstruct our our shared mythologies and and turn our eye our critical eye back on the our belief systems and to in a way that uh that makes them vulnerable to to disintegrating i think you know and and it's not even, it's not even a criticism it's just like that's just where we're at like i think that um well that seems kind of sh that seems short term to me that seems like to deconstruct something, you need to build up something stronger to replace mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. I think we're. I think we're. I think we're. We're in the phase, and you, you can see it in pretty much all aspects of art, um, all aspects of modern art at this point. Um, that it, it seems to be the the nature of it is it, it's a, it's a matter of you know it, even go, you just go back to Picasso and it's like it's it's trying to deconstruct the way we interpret images and whatever. And so it's, it's self-reflective and, and it's in a way it peels back the veil on these shared illusions of how our brains work and how our shared stories work. And so kind of uh, what we consider to be serious art now is like things that criticize, you know, nationalism, criticize the, you know, American exceptionalism that, that criticize, uh, you know, now it's like things like the uh, patriarchy or any, any number of things. It's like the, what we consider to be more credible art at this point are, are, are designed in ways to peel back the illusions of our shared mythologies. And so, so for example, nationalism is something like it's, it's an interesting double-edged sword for me as a, as a Cuban American, because for my family, you know, America was the, the mythology of America was accurate like for them it was they, they left they left a an oppressive regime and america the united states offered a, a life raft of freedom and possibilities that they they lived up to their expectations uh that's a very unique that's a very unique experience and uh, and there's millions of other americans who've experienced a, a totally different uh a mythology they did that mythology didn't pan out for them in different ways but so but but so but so for example but american exceptionalism is something that's kind of been taking a dive since really since the vietnam war i guess you could argue maybe it was is when it really took its first uh water first hits yeah and then watergate and then uh it's 
with its it, the, so I feel like the the conflict with the Soviet Union kind of propped it up for a little while where we had a, a sort of shared enemy that everybody was afraid of. Um, but little by little, like I think being in be, like national pride has fallen out out of favor uh, as as being uh, first as being sort of it started at first started off being kind of naive like oh you think you just think your country's so great not just our country but any, you know it was this idea that oh you think that you think uh government's so virtuous or whatever and it, it went from being considered naive to then now to almost just being considered uh at the far extreme end like it, it gets tied up with uh racism it gets tied up with all kinds of like really negative connotations right. and so uh and there's there's totally valid reasons for those associations but what but what nationalism did have for a while was it helped us for example unite against fascism for Five years. You know, it helps us. When I, I, I came away from the book thinking that World War II was the greatest thing that happened to the U.S. And in specific regards of American exceptionalism, which for the last years, it's funny you bring it up. I really had trouble, trouble specifically with that in the last five years. I don't know if you want to post figure out exactly mm -hmm. what I'm dating there, but mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but World War II, even if this came, we did an episode after fourth of july on the musical 1776 and we all of us were talking about um what america means to us and um i re really I, I talked about the greatness of the constitution but i really had a case of like oh i wish i, I had a mulligan on that and redo that because world war ii and the fallout from world war ii where it's the one time where like it just feels like we did everything right and we were really making strides to fix things in a good civic way where everyone was united. And it was, mm -hmm. and like, even if you look at like Howard Zinn's book, uh, People's History of the United States, where mm -hmm. it's critical of every single war in America, the one war it balks at is World War II. It's the one like everyone, there was a reasonable reason to get into this war. And well, anyway, back to the deconstruction point, um, how much of that is a conversation to uh, between what is working, what isn't working about storytelling techniques and to improve it, make it better? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because I, I find that there's a, what's hip and in vogue in the art world is cynicism and deconstructionism. That's that's what's right, that's what's right. that's what that's what shows that you're intelligent. That's what shows that you understand how the game's played. That's uh, the easiest people... way to take down your parents' world, the world exactly. your parents created for you. Yeah, it shows that you know. It shows that you're not a sucker that's just inherited a set of beliefs that you actually understand kind of how they're operating on our psyche and whatever. And and it, it's it's uh, sometimes that that translates over into the commercial world, like Tarantino does that with. Our, our our ideas of cinema he's he figures out how to he, he just happens to be a big fan of commercial b cinema so he so he so he's he's reconstructing things that are pop culture um and making new pop culture but most of the time if you look at the movies you know that are hailed at can or or whatever it's uh the average person i think is actually trying to, is pushing back against that the average person is that they're actually the deconstruction of mythology is wearing on people, I think, is wearing on us as a as a society in ways that people are trying. So they fight back, they they push back with inventing any kinds of ideologies that, that they can feel like they're a part of. Whether it's, you know, it, I think Trump tapped into that. I think everybody's looking for. I think you could talk a lot of the current social movements. Sometimes people don't even understand why they're a part of them on both sides, but they 
there's people who do, but there's people who I think just jump in because they want to be a part of something. And so I think everybody's kind of longing to be, to feel like they're a part of something meaningful and something that's simple and makes sense. Um, and so I don't know, man, I, I, I feel like I, uh, I, I, as a filmmaker myself, I obviously it's like, you want the, you want the credibility of the art world, but then it's like, man, these people, you know, the art world is doing a bunch of stuff that the average person doesn't give a shit about. The average person just doesn't want any part of that. You know? That 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 cuts the bone on what I what I'm curious about. I would even add, I would go further and say that, in some ways, we saw this. You know, I I don't know if this is how Terry operates, but I, I you almost get the sense that, um, there's there's a degree to which the 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 real art house, the most. Art house people in, in all, all, all kinds of art, not just cinema, but we're talking about cinema. There's a general like almost disdain for the common man. There's a disdain for what their tastes are and there's a disdain for right. what their int their interests are. And it's almost a badge of honor to not appeal to those people and to not and to be uh, to make things that don't they don't understand. They can't right. grasp that, that that shows that I'm not I'm not part of the mass. It, it's a it's a general sort of disdain in some ways for humanity and, and, and just, uh, that I don't think is, um, it leads to some really interesting storytelling for me. I enjoy, like, I enjoy exploring the minds of large Montreal. You know, I, I enjoy, I enjoy a window into that kind of mind. Uh, but that's a different thing. Like that's not, that's not a story that's designed to unite people for a common goal. That's a story that's designed to, kind of turn turn a uh, critical eye back on ourselves uh as it, it, in the most positive sense that's probably what it's doing but um but it's not clear how that helps us get past this divisive place that we're, we happen to be in right now you know You mentioned uh, Picasso a second ago, and um, I, not you know, he's got that famous quote to paint like a child, or I don't remember the exact quote, but it was generally mm -hmm. like the idea is to get, maintain your creativity as, that you had as a kid. Um, I mentioned David Graeber. I, I recommend his book, Bullshit Jobs. One of the things he talks about in there is that um, everyone wants to work. They just don't necessarily want to work in the situation we've all set ourselves up for. And everyone wants to work in a way that one of the most basic first things certain studies have found that babies first appeal to is ways they interact with the world. And they, the thing they do is they found that one of the first things that gives some babies joys is the ability to, to grab a pencil and push it across a table and to know mm -hmm. that, they, that they interact with the world. And a lot of art is... I've been trying to figure out a place to get back to that creativity point of pure creativity without other factors involved and like interact with the world in that way and just to be creative. That seems to be the sweet spot of, it doesn't go into the other factors that of like, is this going to make money? Am I spending, or am I using time where I need to be like accruing value to live off of those issues? But mm -hmm. it still applies. I wanted to wind down with one um, last topic is I couldn't find the exact quote, but I think it's in uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Harari kind of suggests that with everything changing so drastically in the future, and the book, Homo Deus is a little bit about this, but the, the last book, 21 Lessons, is explicitly about how the next 100 years are going to change super fast 
with all the changes, everything that we prospectively might have happen in just 30 years time that we describe now is going to sound like science fiction to us right now. But at the same time, he also has a point, like if anyone tries to describe to you the future and doesn't have a science fiction element to you, they're wrong or they're lying because technology is growing so fast and everything's going to... So he suggests at one point that a lot of storytellers should probably switch to science fiction and mm -hmm. should start telling more science fiction stories just because none of us have, with, with the possibilities of what might happen in the next five years, 10 years, none of us can really predict. Um, I've been thinking about that lately. I don't know. Have, do you have a sci-fi story in you? Is like science, like trying to figure out the future mm -hmm. so we help navigate it. Is that an issue that you might want to deal with? Well, I, I do find sci-fi fascinating when it's psychological. It's not, I mean, I think the, the, the sci-fi that doesn't appeal to, to a wider audience and stuff when it's, it's kind of too techie, it's too, too much about specific technology. I think sci-fi is more, for me is more resonant when it's, it's just a, it's an alternate way to explore maybe human psychology or existence. I mean, I get, there's some good examples like matrix or something where like the matrix has become, the matrix has become a, a shorthand for explaining how uh, the way cons you know the world could be conspiring against us and he brings up the uh, matrix a lot mm -hmm. yeah the matrix is a perfect example of something that uh it it's a sci-fi movie that taps in it taps into our feeling that the universe that we're not really un we're not really aware of the complexity of how the universe is actually operating on us uh that maybe our, our view of the universe is too simplistic and the matrix figured out how to commercialize that and turn it into something that people could just uh, immediately grasp. But, but what that really, but what that movie is really tapping into is the fact that for me is the idea that we've, we've become a completely materialistic. We have, we have, we have a completely materialistic worldview in the sense, not about consuming goods. We, that is part of it, but that in a sense, uh, anything that can't be measured or weighed is essentially just doesn't exist. And I don't mean just God or angels or something like that. I'm just saying we don't really have any, we don't have a, a, a strong, cohesive way of thinking about, uh, you know, the, the abstract ideas like love or the, or taste, the taste of sensations. Consciousness is not something that's even really, there's people that are trying to explore that a little bit, but in the, in, in the way we go through our education system, uh, there's no, there's no exploration almost at all outside of philosophy of, of things that can't, can't be weighed. Is science fiction a new way of doing that or, or a better way I, of doing that? It's a way of dramatizing. I think it's a way of dramatizing. It's a way Exclusively. Of dramatizing, uh, Does fantasy do it to you too? Can you dramatize just does yeah, it I think so. well, the science in it? I, I think so. I, well, the thing is, I think that sci-fi maybe taps. It's, it's maybe sci-fi when done in a way that seems realistic, maybe uh is more acceptable to our modern materialist uh framework or something so it's like uh, sci-fi can put like a, a mechanical spin on something that's ultimately you know psychological phenomenon fantasy ties it it taps it does more like the what religion does is it taps into mythology and uh, archetypes and that so it, it it works in a, it works maybe in a different way where sci-fi sci like i i know you know my dad's an engineer he likes sci-fi stuff doesn't love fantasy so much you know so there's things that like so if you want like kind of a rationalist exploration of human psychology sci-fi sometimes provides that in a way that's interesting i um i think that what i think the challenge is really for us though we can technological challenges technology changes society really fast 
But the real challenge is figuring out how we're supposed to operate. What is the morality, the operating morality system within changing technologies? And so, because the technology in and of itself is, you know, the classic example obviously is the splitting of an atom. It can split, you can split an atom and, and destroy a city or you can split an atom to power France, you know? And it's it's really just a matter of our our value systems is how we determine how to implement these these technologies. So, so you know, there's stuff coming down the pike with like Neuralink, uh, something that I find pretty fascinating was uh, Elon uh, Musk, the, the brain chip right. that is, uh, you know, it's a, it's kind of the back door into it is uh, maybe it can help people with neurological disorders and things, but eventually it's like, well, uh, that's the first round of like, uh, that's the, thing. that's the first round. And then, t- then 10 years later, it's like, well, why not? If you, if you can adjust it, if you have an app on your phone that you can adjust your serotonin levels with just, a, just with the, you know, electrical impulses, why not do that? Harari specifically talks about one of the things we have to navigate in the next few years is that, again, this is all sounds very sci-fi, but it's things like that that makes us start what we would classify now as post-human, we'd call. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, right now, those with value, basically the richer people, might start creating a complete different subset of themselves at a higher level class level or ca- case level. And so... Mm-hmm that's the thing we have to navigate around to make sure that certain sects of humanity doesn't separate from the rest of us. But then, and then there's all these other factors like uh, uh, artificial generalized intelligence. He talks a lot mm-hmm. about um, data being the new most valuable thing. Like there's a part, I forget which book he specifically talks about, but there was a fascinating, fascinating passage to me where he talks about data is taking over what for centuries has been um, probably since the agricultural or agricultural change. Uh, property. Property was the main thing that we were trying to do that we were trying humans were going after f- to accrue value. And now data is going to start taking that over exponentially. Like, you know, data, I think two or three years ago, t- overtook oil is more, more, exp- or making more money than oil did. Like there's. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the thing is, is sort of I, what it feels like is like the, the, the meta asset that people are after is influence over other people and so mm. we're we're so we're so social that the, the reality is that we've gotten to the point where like the the biggest threat to our day-to-day life outside of whatever the catastrophes catastrophes of climate change might bring realistically day-to-day the thing that influences your life the most is other people and, and that's how you acquire resources that's how you acquire influence uh, so uh it obviously used to be that having lots of property was a way, to, you know, that's how you could control crops and you can make people work on those crops and that's how you have influence. Uh, fossil fuels became for a long time uh, the primary way of, of, of creating wealth because you can make people move and you, make, you can make machines do work for you. Uh, data is now a way to get people to do anything you want if you have the right data and the right message. And still um, relatively early stages. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. So, but I, but I, I do, I do think, you know, like, uh, that, that's going to be, I, sci-fi is useful. And I think also, um, I think, I think stories that we don't, we don't really have a cohesive sense of even what a self is anymore, what a human identity is. And so right. that seems like, oh, who gives a shit? That's all abstract. Of what, what differences make? Well, but it's like, people don't realize that our, we have unspoken ideas of what a human is that like, so why not, for example, why not? uh just kill somebody who's you know uh who's brain dead for example like if you say like why are there even debates about whether or not to pull the plug on on a, a, a 
basically this non-functioning human body right. there's a sense there's a sort of a, there's a, we because we've inherited we, there's a sense that a human being is somehow sacred intrinsic that we don't value. we don't use yeah it has intrinsic value we don't use those words anymore uh we just act it out um but what happened you know but but we don't have but we don't have a strong sense there's also a lot of people who just think like well a body is just a set of, you know it's just a set of atoms and even my i don't have free will it's just a it's just atoms that are compelling other uh, synapses to fire and whatever so as you as you as you peel back you know if we don't get it i think if we don't get a good strong definition collective definition of what a human consciousness is what a, what is it what is it what is consciousness at all then if we get, then you introduce things like Neuralink or you introduce things like general intelligence and th this is when it's and you've all talked about this uh people like sam harris talk about this like there's it, then you get you get into the dilemma of if nothing if, if we don't have an idea of what the boundaries are what's sacred what's worth preserving what's not worth preserving uh it's very difficult to, to like why not alter why not use Neuralink to completely alter a human being's personality uh is there anything sacred you know for example i i I'd, I'd be curious to know what you think. If you could choose, for example, to be to have your exact same personality, but you lo you lose every memory you've ever had. So you just going forward, you would still be Shane, but you don't remember anything from your past at all. Mm -hmm. Or you, or you could keep all your memories up until this point, but your personality gets altered in a way that you can't that you have no idea. You're, you're not you anymore, but you have all your same memories, which is a greater loss. Uh, probably the latter. Just. I was going to mention Harari has this really great description of the self by using inside out. And he talks about just like you are multiple selves competing for different components at any given point. It's, it's a, in, I don't know if you're, you're into the current uh, mindfulness. Uh, I wouldn't call it a trend cause I'm into it, but, but the, the self not existing or the self being multiple multifaceted fits for that. And I also like the idea that you're not a set self like you, your identity is a story your brain tells itself and so mm -hmm. if my if i i think i would like i i, I want to currently even outside your scenario just want to believe that i'm a person that w my limitations are just what i tell myself my limitations are like it, it, i i i can i am capable of doing whatever i'm capable of doing you know it's and it's not the personality is not necessarily it can change it's, it it helps for like issues of bad psychological for things like addiction or other things like people tell themselves they can't get out over addiction and there's obviously a lot of biochemical backing to that but there's also the story your brain tells it's that you you're you might have a genetic disposition towards it or I I mean I know I don't want to sound like hippy dippy about this nor unsympathetic that like it's that easy like it's it's you know it's a lifetime of struggle to change some change change your personality and then you may fail at it but it's possible you know what I mean could it, it's possible to change your personality you think you or that's an idea you like it's somewhere in between because I mean well, well like, the, I, 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 I'm not one hundred percent sure you can but I like the idea that you can. Well, and you could also, you could argue that whether whether or not it's true that you can change your personality for the better, you're still better off believing that you can change yourself for the better. Like you, you know that the the, right. the, the believe, believing the opposite might be a quick fall into the precipice. You know, uh, as soon as you believe that you don't have control and don't have an ability to improve, I, I don't know. That that's a, that's that's sort of the, that actually you just gave an example of a modern useful myth that 
may or may not be true. It may or may not be true. I mean, they, the, you know, Stephen Pinker has the blank, you know, the blank slate. I don't know if you ever read the blank slate, but Stephen Pinker has this, th well, it basically just shows by, by analyzing uh, statistics of twin, like doing a massive twin study that the vast majority of our, of our personality and the outcome of our life is genetic. Uh, you know, you right, take, you take right. Two, I have heard, two, I have listened to some podcasts with him where he's explained. Yeah. That. Yeah. And so, um, and so it seems to be, which largely determined by just, just our genes and our, our, our your parents, your parents can define you even if your parents don't raise you just because of the genetic you, and you exhibit right. traits of your parents. Yeah. And so that's why they, when they separate these, these twins, like separated at birth, they, the, the twin separate, you know, the twin raised by the birth parents is way more similar to the, tw the twin that was, that was raised by uh, adoptive parents. So they, they end up being the same. And they, so, so there seems to be evidence that you can't actually change maybe your personality or your disposition very much, but you certainly can, uh, you know, there can maybe, there can be an alignment of your personality with a certain situation that, that allows you to succeed in, in, in ways that you wouldn't otherwise, you know, um, like I, uh, the, the, everybody has things that they're good at and maybe it's easier to change your situation to, to, you know, put yourself in a situation that is more in tune with your, your personality than just to change your personality actually. Um, but anyways, I don't know. Um, I don't, I see, I don't want to, I want to make sure that I'm clear that I'm not giving some self-helpy dippy thing here. I'm, it's like the idea that you can learn an instrument at 40, as opposed to this idea of neuroplasticity or that you can only after 13, all the attributes you want to learn, that's all it is for your lifetime. You're only going to mm. learn that. You have to do, if you want to learn guitar at 40, you have to sit down and just accumulate the hours of doing it, but you can't, you know, something like that. And that's not, learning guitar is not a personality trait, but. I see, yeah, yeah, no, that's not, yeah. Framing something, framing a way of how to look at something is a certain thing that you can reinforce in your mind is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I don't, and I actually don't, I don't disagree, by the way, that the idea, that the self, the idea of a self is an illusion. Um, and you can definitely, you can see that there's a lot, I mean, everybody reports that after doing psychedelics, uh, it's, right. it's, it's always, a, it's always suddenly the disillusion of, of that self and you realizing that this is all just a, a bit of a fabrication, if not entirely a fabrication. But the question is, uh, the identity, the idea of a, of a self that exists, that has agency might be the most powerful story we've ever told ourselves and without it things might fall apart very quickly so it, it, that's a very uh, very good point that's a very good point it, it yourself is the most powerful story you know mm -hmm. and it's 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 completely it it's what motivates you to do everything and and to find connections and it's what helps you orient and decide like what 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 do you do next when you wake up in the morning what how do you choose what to do versus what not to do it, it, the world is so infinitely vast and everything is possible how do you even begin to prioritize? And that's typically based on ourself. Like it's it's based on the idea that we tell ourselves of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing and where where our actions fit into some greater narrative. Uh, and sometimes sometimes the greater narrative we have is that uh, I'm destined to fail. I'm a, I was always I've been cursed. I'm always you know uh, I'm and, and I think that that's a narrative people can tell themselves that takes them exactly where they expected. Um, and, and the narratives don't all, your personal narrative doesn't always align with your outcome of your life, but that's it's a key, that's a key kinda, point. Like the, the idea of what you plan to do versus even changing your framework on this doesn't meet change reality around you. 
it doesn't necessarily change reality, but it's it might be the best shot you have that we know of for for helping to uh, to reshape the world around you. you know? Yeah, um, that's uh, that's how we tell the stories to ourselves, and that's potentially the guide guide work we or the framework we have to tell stories to other people in the future. Um, Julio Quintana, thank you for doing the podcast. This was, we need to do more like this. Like there's no, there's no other episode like this. So. No. Okay. Well, uh, I'm glad, man. Yeah. Let's let me know. I, I had a great time.